It's time for the Access of Easy podcast, the weekly technology digest that keeps you ahead of the curve. Brought to you by EasyDNS.com. Welcome back, everybody, to the Access of Easy podcast version of uh, the Weekly Digest. This is number 287. My name is Joey. In the other panel, uh, the other voice you will hear on uh, this feed and every week's feed is Len. We are the co-host of the Canadian Bitcoiners podcast. But like I mentioned, this is not that podcast, nor is this the salon. This is a new Bomb Thrower TV, Bomb Thrower Media, weekly accompaniment to the Access of Easy tech and privacy briefing. Uh, I think we're going a little off script here because we're I not think, used to I, doing anything that's non Canadian Bitcoiners podcast related. This is our this is our first time. We're happy to be here, and uh, we're looking forward to getting to know each of you as uh, we go through the biggest stories in privacy and tech every week in a short little digestible thing for you. So, Len, couple of good stories this week. Uh, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on them. Let's get into the first one. Well, we could lead off with Google that is blocking percentage of Canadian users from accessing the news online in light of the Canadian Bill C-18. And this is a bill that's going to be respecting or act respecting online communication platforms that make news content available to persons in Canada. And the federal government of Canada has introduced this legislation that's going to require tech companies like Google and Meta to compensate Canadian news organizations for the content that appears on their platform. And in December 2022, this was approved by the House of Commons, but it's not yet law. It still has to go through the Senate. It's now in second reading. Once it does all that, and if it passes, then it has to be, um, it's going to be a little royal assent to eventually become law. So uh, interestingly enough, do you know anybody that may be at, um, impacted by this? Because Google spokesperson Shay Purdy was saying around 4% of Canadians who use a search engine will be affected for five weeks. So 4%, Joey, do you know anybody? Because I have the answer to that for you. I'm off the top of my head, but I'm curious to hear what you think. Well, myself, I am somebody that's impacted. And I could tell you for a fact, because I do searches frequently on Google for new stories related to the Canadian Bitcoiners podcast and... I am noticing now stories are missing, which is interesting. So I am one of the 4%. For the next five weeks, unfortunately, I am banned if I'm using a Canadian IP. Using VPN, I'm okay. So This is interesting, right? We, we've we discussed this at length on the other show. We've talked about it on Twitter. A lot of people are talking about this in the sort of informed Twitter sphere. A couple of things of note. The, the rationale for this has been, I think sort of obfuscated by the powers that be, unfortunately. I don't think it's necessarily nefarious, but it, it, it the problem is that if you look at the rationale for this, it, it raises a bunch more questions than it answers, as is the usual for policies of this nature, these sort of broad strokes. I don't understand how the quote-unquote cultural protection is somehow important when it comes to making sure that there's there's nudging in the news that I can read and the stories that I can read and the results that I can get. But any other time we talk about protecting Canadian culture, you're labeled with uh, an ism, uh, as is the, as has been the case for the last 10 years. To me, this is a, a tell. I think, Len, the easiest fix for this is if I'm YouTube, Meta, uh, um, Am like any of these companies, say Amazon, if I'm YouTube or uh, any of the companies that are going to have to 
push people away from average search results. What I would suggest is those companies who are curating the results for you label when a story has been pushed to the top as a result of this legislation. And people will pretty quickly realize that they're not getting the quality results they, they are used to getting, number one, and oftentimes they're getting results that they don't want to get. A uh, couple of the things here, and I'm curious on, uh, about your take on this. There's obviously been a lot of talk about there's obviously been a lot of talk about uh, the contributions that the federal government makes to these major media players in, in, in the country and what it means for the partiality or impartiality of reporting, probably the former, unfortunately. This is, this is to me, really another step in the wrong direction in that regard. And I think that people are going to find themselves concerned very quickly about the relationship that's kind of Budding is, is almost too, too weak of a term because it's been going on for a long time, but it's starting to really blossom and become uh, brazen in, in some respects. This is dangerous stuff, man. I'm, I'm very interested in seeing how this goes for uh, the Canadian government and also how these other players decide to act. It's, it mentions in the story that the government expectation for the payment right now is about a quarter billion dollars. I don't think any of these companies are interested in giving that money away. And as we've seen in other industries, Canada is often too small a market to even bother with. You know, we don't even get the Super Bowl commercials uh, in Canada. It's not quite the same thing, but it's in the same vein. The market is small. The economic return is small for these companies. And you may find that you are without services that you had before or without news that you had before or whatever, because it's just not worth it uh, to try and get this to Canadians. That's a net loss for the average Canadian citizen. What do you think? It's a little bit of government overreach. Uh, some people would uh, maybe complain and point out one thing. And you noted the people that are going to be benefiting from it is the news sources and they're going to be the recipients of this money. They're, of course, happy with this type of thing. But given the landscape in which we all operate in, if they're not able to make it in the online sp online space as it is, this is almost like a, a way of just um, rewarding those that just can't do it and it, it, you know if you're not able to do it just move aside and let somebody else do it for you because they'll be able to do it better let let users decide who has the best product out there and if they're not using the services here the, the news stories news services here in canada maybe it's just not the best places to get your news just my two cents joey we can move on though we could talk about the chinese cyber security company pangu lab and they have alleged to have identified quote against the west end quote hacking group members and this is a, a hacking group that their core members are coming mostly or all from europe and north america and they have been launching sustained cyber attacks against china as their primary target now the people that are the core members of this Three are from France and close to home, one is from Canada. And of all the people that are included in this, I believe it's six in total, only one has been named publicly, named and shamed. What they're saying is that they have sensitive information, including the source code and database of important information systems related to China about more than 70 times since 2021, involving some 300 information systems on more than 100 important government agencies as well as aviation and infrastructure department now these people 
If one has been named, I would imagine the other five have also their identity is well known because they wouldn't be able to nab just a one without the naming the other five. Something is going to happen to them. I don't want to say Epstein Island type thing, but um, I, they have made some big enemies here with China. Typically, China's on the other end of this online espionage. Now they're on the receiving end, so it's almost like the tables have turned. The question I have then is, are these just independent people or are they funded by a state actor? I guess we will never know, but we might get some very creative propaganda coming out of China related to this. Isn't the broader story here that basically no, there's no such thing as clean data, safe data? Like there's going to be some other stories in here that have similar tinges to this, but as we've as we've kind of entered into and and continued through what I would call the era of like technological storage, data storage, right? Nothing is in a file folder anymore. Everything is in a SharePoint folder or whatever. The, you've you, what you've done is created these massive honeypots. Every they're everywhere. Okay, these things are in government databases. They're in uh, uh, private corporation databases. They're in publicly funded uh, different institutions, NGOs. You name it, right? There's a, a million ways to define these things. But the point is, you've basically you've basically invited this kind of activity, state sponsored or otherwise, because all the secrets are in one place. Period. And so there's constantly this super high risk game of cat and mouse between good guys and bad guys, white hats and black hats uh, on the hacker side, trying to invade and protect and invade and protect and be one step ahead of the other guy uh, without without letting them know that they're a step ahead, right? To get in and get out without uh, setting off the alarm and, and making sure that everyone knows they have to change the locks, so to speak. This is This is fascinating stuff. We've often discussed as again, this sort of informed Twitter sphere, I, I'll, I'll call them the listeners and viewers of this show for sure. This idea that the next war has actually already started and it's not a hot war. It's not a land war, although there is one going on now, of course, it's a war of sort of attrition on, on the electronic side, the technology side, the hacking, how, how secure is your energy grid? How secure is your data? How secure are your weapon systems? How secure are your defense uh, schematics? All these things. When I see stories like this, the things that stick out to me are, this is another one, you know, another straw on the camel's back, right? Between uh, countries that are already at odds. And number two, Len, I feel like these things are like cockroaches, man. If I hear about one, there's a hundred more that I don't know about. You know, they're in your computer, they're in my computer, they're in my phone, they're in, they're everywhere. They're in the ring doorbells. This stuff is going on all over the place. Some more severe than others and some more consequential than others. This obviously one of the more consequential ones, but this is becoming part of a broader story about hacking and electronic cyber warfare being really the, not the next frontier, but the current frontier of uh, hostilities between nations. Protect your data. Moving forward, we can talk about the case for adopting DNSSEC and why it's so unpopular. DNSSEC, I've done some research into this because I didn't come across this term before. I, I was uh, looking into the show. This strengthens the authentication in DNS, domain name services, using digital signatures based on public key cryptography. With DNS SEC, it's not DNS queries and responses themselves that are cryptographically signed, but rather the DNS data itself is signed by the owner of the data. Every DNS zone has a public slash private key. It sounds very similar to what 
is within Bitcoin. So it's easier to determine who indeed is, has access to it, and you'd only have access to it if you have the private key. I'm not exactly sure how this is going to impact move, using the web moving forward, but if it adds a layer of security, I would look more into this and see if this is something we could roll out moving forward. Is it going to be impactful in terms of legacy systems? Will that cause an issue with older systems, slower systems, and anything along those lines? I do not know, but I want to look a little bit more into this. When I see public key and private key, it raises my attention. Public key and private key encryption is important. You mentioned it's the case in Bitcoin. We've seen this in other things too. Noster, for example, has uh, iterations of both public and private quote-unquote keys to ensure that access is secure. I, I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty on this, but what I will say is that if I look at the story before, uh, that's a touch the stove moment, as uh, a friend of ours would say. There's going to be more of these touch the stove moments that necessitate quote unquote unpopular uh, protocols, unpopular additions to uh, the security stack, whether it's because they're uh, full of friction, expensive, hard to implement, hard to maintain, whatever. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what the points of friction are. If if there's an issue at, uh, writ large with security across uh, cyber um, across cybersecurity and across information networks, what you will find is that one, people will adopt these things regardless of how difficult they are, and number two, there there will be economic incentive to make these things easier. This happens all the time, right? And nothing is easy the first time, whether it's this sort of meme that everyone talks about, you know, the same amount of power that went into sending us to the moon is in your pocket now. I don't know if that's true or not, whatever. Uh, the biggest, you know, the, the fastest computer in 1980 was the size of a, you know, uh, a, a, a smoker, a backyard smoker. And now it's, uh, you know, you got 20 times that amount of juice in your iPhone. There's always points of friction when things first get started and they're unpopular for different reasons. If the functionality is there, the economic incentive will arrive not far after. And I expect that if truly this is as as uh, important as uh, the article is claiming, then uh, we'll see more adoption, no doubt. And moving on, Joey, Twitter. They're facing some backlash for removing the SMS two-factor authentication for the non-paying users. <clears throat> this is going to impact, I believe, both of us because I do not have the blue check mark and I don't think you have it anymore. So this impacts both of us. And from Twitter, quote, while historically a popular form of two-factor authentication, unfortunately, we have seen phone number based 2FA be used and abused by bad actors. So starting today, this is as of last uh, week or two ago, we will no longer allow accounts to enroll in the text message slash SMS method of two-factor authentication unless they are Twitter Blue subscribers. The availability of text message 2FA to Twitter Blue may vary by country and carrier, end quote. And Twitter was saying that this abuse was costing them approximately $60 million a year. Now, they are a business, so they are able to try to trim the fat as much as possible. I give them credit here. They see something that should be trimmed, and they're trying to encourage people to use Twitter Blue as much as possible. It's a good business model. Now, of note, if you are not a Twitter Blue user like myself and Joey, March 20th is the end date. And it's advised you start using some sort of authenticator, like Google Authenticator. But I would also provide a few other alternatives that are open source. AGIS, Authenticator, Authy, FreeOP, and finally, and OTP. Check them out. See which one works best for you. They're all open source. 
and they give you the same functionality, if not more than Google Authenticator. So this will be able to meet your Twitter needs to logging in your account, even if you lost your password and you will be able to recover it. That's just my two cents. I like the move that Twitter is doing here because if it's going to save them money, all, all more power to them. And let's be perfectly honest, SMS authenticator or for two-factor authenticator, it's generally to be very, very weak because there's SIM swap uh, attacks that you could do to do it. So yeah, uh, it's a good move. I think everybody should be practicing better hygiene when it comes to securing your, your data online, especially your authenticator and using less 2FA that's related to SMS. I'm pumped you mentioned the FOSS options. Uh, always good to have free and open software solutions that are auditable, um, forkable, and uh, improvable by the masses. It's not just the developers that can do it. If you have an idea, you can grab the code and make your edition and live with the results if you don't like the Microsoft, Google, um, et cetera, options. I, I was waiting to see how you finished your summary because it sounded to me for about 99% of that story you were negative on it, but I think you come down the same place I come down. Musk has a responsibility to uh, his pocketbook, not his shareholders, maybe his board, I don't know, but I don't think even he, need, he needs to worry about those anymore either, uh, to cut costs anywhere possible. And if the less secure of two options is causing him grief to the tune of about 60 mil a year, yeah, you got to do this. I think people should be getting familiar with 2FA at this point. There's a great deal of economic incentive to hack and uh, invade people's privacy, their accounts, steal passwords, blah, blah, blah. Not only using SIM swap, Len, but you know, as we've seen kind of this, I, I hesitate to say it, but I will, this kind of like general decline in competency in retail spaces, for example, cell phone uh, helplines. How many times have we heard I was socially engineered. Socially engineered is a very kind word for duped. You got duped by some guy on the phone and gave up someone's phone number, password, whatever, birthday, who knows, right? This is going to become more common. Why would you leave your privacy in the hands of some other person? You would never do this. You would never give the keys to your house to the guy who answers the phone at Rogers or Bell. You would never give your bank account information to the guy who answers the phone at Rogers or Bell. Why would you do this? It's 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 one it's one more thing you can do to become difficult to compromise. And so everyone should be doing this. I hope people really take this and run with it. I'm afraid that, you know, without even looking, Len, at traditional media stories about this, I guarantee they attack Elon Musk for taking away Twitter security, blah, blah, blah. If you don't have 2FA or you have SMSFA, it's more or less the same thing at this point. If someone wants to get into your account and you have one of those two options, they're going to get in. If you're high enough value, they're going to get in. And so... Don't be one of these people. 2FA is easy to do with an authenticator app. You should be doing this. There's many YouTube videos. It takes no more than five minutes to set this up in the in sort of the most liberal guess at how long it'll take. And it's it's really, you know, fun for all ages at this point. There's no excuse not to do it. Mm -hmm. Agreed. GoDaddy confirms a sophisticated cyber attack on servers, and this is leading to intermittent web redirections. GoDaddy, well, they, we know who they are. And what they do, well, their systems were once again compromised, and this time it happened late last year in 2022. In fact, it was early December 2022, in fact, that they started receiving a small number of customer complaints about their websites being redirected. And there were random websites that were hosted on GoDaddy using the cPanel shared hosting servers. Those are the ones that were subjected to a malware attack and malware was installed on 
those, and that was behind this particular attack. And the malware allowed outside people, outside sources to gain access to the servers and the cPanel hosting environment. And what happened as a result, aside from redirecting a small number of websites, the code or some code from GoDaddy was stolen, which is concerning because this is closed source. And when somebody has access to the code, they have they are able to see where the cracks lie within the system. And there may be some potential attacks moving forward. So GoDaddy is off the list of things you should use for hosting your website. Easy DNS is a place to use it. So definitely check out alternatives because GoDaddy is not doing their job with securing their own data. So imagine what they're doing with your data. It's easy DNS, buddy, and there is no second best. There is no second best hosting provider. And we know this because we came from GoDaddy. Okay. We were on GoDaddy as we're trying to set up our website with easy DNS, which we will at some point. Uh, so look out for that. It's, it's been fairly simple. Um, my, my wife speaks the language. She's been talking with uh, the GoDaddy or the uh, easy DNS folks. And it's been more or less seamless, even though I did everything I could to make it difficult. Now, as far as this story is concerned, you know what I really want to know? I want to know how long the gap was between the intrusion and the announcement, because this is one thing I'm seeing more and more. For example, uh, in Ontario, the uh, vaccination database was compromised about a year and a half ago, I think November 21, right? And we didn't hear about this until I think November 22. I can so give you I, the answer. So, okay, so tell me, what was the gap? So it was early December. It was reported internally, February 16th. Fucking brutal. Oh, brutal. Absolutely brutal. Absolutely brutal. That's not fair. That is not fair to people who use that service, nor is it fair to people who signed up for the service in between those two times. This is, that is dishonest behavior. It's unethical to do that. GoDaddy is a website provider, a hosting provider that takes everyone from corporate people to mom and pops to guys like you and me, right? That's where we went for our first website. And how, how is anyone supposed to know that they're, they're insecure? And again, not to get too passionate about this, but people have too much on their plate day to day to know exactly what's going on. I look at the source for the story, infosecuritymagazine.com. I don't know anyone who reads infosecuritymagazine.com. Certainly people who are setting up their Etsy store or their uh, you know widget sales on GoDaddy are not reading infosecuritymagazine.com. Does GoDaddy have an announcement about that anywhere? Maybe yeah, it's in the... Maybe, that's, maybe that's it's where like, I got the information from. So so maybe so maybe it's like available if you look for it. But do you think when you sign up, they tell you, by the way, uh, before you pay us for your hosting, uh, there was a bit of an incident a little while ago. Like, do you think they do that? I doubt it, you know? And it's not fair because people people deserve better than that. And again, like not to pump easy DNS like crazy, but you you can't argue with the results over here. Okay. This is this is not that hard to figure out. And I, I fear that there's more, again, Len, you know, would GoDaddy have announced this if uh, it wasn't leaked some other way? Like, is it fair to say that this happens probably more than we know and the companies just settle it on uh, with like these ransoms you hear about sometimes or they settle it internally, they, they don't tell everyone? This for sure happens. It for sure happens. And people should be aware and know that your data you know, leaving it in the hands of incompetent people, and whether it's the guy who answers the phone at Rogers, like I said earlier, or a provider like GoDaddy, you are leaving yourself open to risk. That's unnecessary. Pick good people, pick good companies, and you can avoid this stuff altogether.
Let's end it on this last story, Joey. Mark Jeselbik uh, was saying on the Red Jacket Capital podcast, buying Bitcoin is like buying the whole internet in 1990. I was there in 1990. So uh, <laughs> somebody was, I wasn't using the internet though. I was using the internet a few years after that, actually not too many. In 1994, I believe, was when I started using it. We are so early. Yes, buying Bitcoin is like buying the whole internet back then. This is not financial advice, but look, <laughs> look at options that are available to you to purchase it. And when you do, don't leave it on some platform. Take it off. Learn how to secure it on cold storage and secure those keys. That way you know that it won't be stolen and you can sleep well at night. Joey, that's right. over that's right. to you. That's that's it for this week. I agree with Len. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you again next week. If you want more of us, check out the Canadian Bitcoiners podcast. And uh, of course, Bomb Thrower TV, podcast, YouTube, it's all there. Check it out. We're going to be there. Hope to see you guys there. And uh, we will talk to you when we talk to you. Yes, take care.